The modern administrative state touches almost every aspect of American life, from economic regulation to public health to education, policing, and consumer protections. Decisions made by administrative agencies can have an outsized impact on our lives. Most of the legal scholarship and judicial discussion on the administrative state focuses on federal administrative law, like the alphabet agencies created during FDR's New Deal. However, this myopic view of the important legal issues facing administrative agencies and administrative law ignores the vast regulatory system operating at the state and local level. Indeed, state and local administrative law can have an outsized impact on our daily lives. Land use regulations represent an area of state and local law that has dramatically increased in importance over the last several decades. These regulations generally aim to promote laudable goals like public safety and welfare, environmental protections, and the preservation of historical communities and structures. But studies also demonstrate that such regulations tend to reduce the supply of housing, particularly low-income housing, and can negatively impact local economies. Extra cost, delays, and uncertainty with respect to necessary permits and approvals can put substantial pressure on the development process and make an already costly project economically feasible. In this context, and particularly with respect to environmental regulations, state and local agencies can have a dual oversight role over aspects of the development process. Massachusetts was the first state in the country to enact wetlands protection legislation. In 1972, Massachusetts adopted the Wetlands Protection Act to provide protections for water supplies, fisheries, shellfish, wildlife habitats, and other natural resources. At the local level, the Wetlands Protection Act is administered by conservation commissions. As an initial matter, Local conservation commissions decide whether projects satisfy the protections of the Wetlands Protection Act. Local jurisdictions also possess the authority to enact stricter environmental protections if necessary to protect the unique resources, which are not properly accounted for by the state law. The Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection, the DEP, administers the Wetlands Protection Act at the state level. But how does this process work? If a project implicates wetlands protections, the local conservation commission will conduct fact-finding and approve or deny the project. If the project is denied, the developer can then appeal to the DEP. The DEP can effectively overrule the local commission so long as the local commission's decision was based on state law and not a more restrictive local ordinance. In other words, if the Conservation Commission's decision was based on the Wetlands Protection Act and not a stricter local regulation, the DEP reigns supreme. This dual governance structure can set up clashes between local and state regulators. One recent very high-profile example involved the Long Island Bridge from Quincy to Long Island at Boston Harbor. The city of Boston recently proposed building an opioid treatment facility on Long Island once housed a mental health facility that inspired the movie Shutter Island. The only vehicular access point to Long Island is through Quincy, over the Long Island Bridge. Problem is, the Long Island Bridge was demolished in 2015. 
due to the potential wetlands impact stemming from the reconstruction, the City of Boston requested permission for the bridge project from the Quincy Conservation Commission. The Conservation Commission rejected the project because it contended the City of Boston had failed to provide sufficient evidence to support that the reconstruction would not impact Quincy's wetlands. Undeterred, Boston applied to the DEP to overrule the Conservation Commission's decision. The DEP sided with Boston and authorized the bridge reconstruction. Thus began a legal showdown in Massachusetts courts between the city of Boston and the city of Quincy, two neighboring communities, in a dispute that would test the powers of local regulators against higher levels of state government. This, the city of Boston, versus Quincy Conservation Commission. Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at Bernkoff. Today, we're talking to Sammy Nabalsi, partner at Rose Law Partners, who successfully represented the city of Boston on this and several other related cases. Welcome, Sammy. Thanks for joining. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So this case ends up at the highest court in Massachusetts, the Supreme Judicial Court. And the court sides with you, the city of Boston. The reasoning was essentially that where the Conservation Commission's denial of the project was based on the Wetlands Protection Act, the state law, the DEP's reversal of that decision was controlling. Under these circumstances, according to the court, the state agency trumps the local agency. And so I get that, and we're going to come back to that decision in a few minutes. But what really caught my eye about this case was not even necessarily this decision itself, but the oppositional rhetoric that is still out there coming from the city of Quincy. Chris Walker, the Quincy mayor's chief of staff, for instance, was quoted as saying, this is not remotely close to a green light for a new bridge. And Quincy is going to continue to press its case through all available avenues. Now, Long Island has a sort of strange and unique history, I would say. It does. It was used to incarcerate indigenous peoples during King Philip's War. It was used to train colonial soldiers during the Revolutionary War. It was used to house a hospital and later the mental health facility. And it was used as a Cold War era missile launch site. So, you know, it has sort of this long, unusual history of uses. And so now it's being proposed as an opioid treatment facility, a much needed public health facility in Boston and, yeah. and elsewhere. And so even despite this sort of long track record of unusual uses, you have vehement opposition to this project. So Quincy says, this fight is not over. My question to you, Sammy, is 
Where's the next battle? Well, that's a great question. And I think, you know, the answer to that is probably, I don't know. And this is why. The City of Boston versus Quincy Conservation Commission proceeding at the Supreme Judicial Court was probably the, the last of 10 different proceedings involving this project on a number of different permits. Quincy has stuck true to that from the very beginning, and that's why they appealed the order of conditions we received from the Boston Conservation Commission. There was a separate determination under the State Wetlands Protection Act that was appealed to Superior Court. Every single time those cases, those outcomes went in Boston's favor. And so we're in a little bit of a quiet period right now, but there are some permits remaining. So the city of Boston still needs its Chapter 91 license because we are reconstructing a structure in the waterway. We still require what is called, it's not a permit. The Office of Coastal Zone Management in Massachusetts is called Federal Assistance Review at the Federal Coastal Zone Management Plan. And then once those two, I'll call them permits, are in place, the U.S. Coast Guard has to issue its federal bridge permit under the Federal Bridge Act. And once those are in place, then the project is fully permitted. All of those determinations are technically appealable. I don't know if the city of Quincy will appeal those decisions, but they are all appealable decisions. So if I were to guess, that's where the next battle will be. So you mentioned that this was the latest in a series of about 10 different disputes that Boston has had with Quincy. So I want to go back to the other end of my question, back to the beginning of this dispute. Basically, what I want to know is when did you or when did Boston know that they were in for a protracted legal battle here? And, and more specifically, what I'd love to know is how did you strategize at the earliest stages? In other words, once you, Sammy Nabolsi, gets involved, how comprehensive was the strategy for dealing with this vehement opposition? Or did it involve just sort of a case-by-case case analysis? You know, on this permit, if they challenge, we'll deal with it this way. Or was there a, a more holistic approach at the earliest stages of this dispute? It was a little bit of both. To answer your first question, when did we know? I got to say it was probably right away. So in January 2018, Massachusetts had just experienced a record year for opioid deaths. I think in the prior year, there were 2,000, maybe 100 or something less than that opioid-related deaths in Massachusetts. So Mayor Walsh's inauguration address, then Mayor Walsh, now Secretary Walsh, then Mayor Walsh, his inauguration address announced that he wanted to reopen the existing public health facilities on Long Island as a recovery campus to address the opioid use disorder problem, really, in Massachusetts. I remember, I wasn't involved yet in the case, but I remember almost immediately press reporting on this and getting quotes about Mayor of Quincy, I think you mentioned Chris Walker as chief of staff, opposing the project almost immediately. I think the city knew that it was going to be in for a fight with the city of Quincy before it even filed permits. I would guess that the city of Boston probably knew that it was in for a fight, maybe even before Mayor Walsh made the announcement. And that really goes back to 
just the thoroughness of the investigation that the Public Works Department did, the incredible design that was put together by his engineers to really create a project that meets the goal of reestablishing vehicular access to Long Island, but minimizing, absolutely minimizing impacts on environmental resources. I think with an eye towards, of course, having a good project that gets the job done, but also knowing that we were going to get challenges. How do you design a project that absolutely is going to meet every single local, state, federal, environmental, or applicable land use regulation? So then if we are going to get mired in litigation as we have been, I think that teed us up for the upper hand. Now, you know, when I got involved, I think it really started the holistic strategy, which was, what's our story here? And the story actually is not about the bridge. It's really about the why. There's been so much focus on the bridge, but the why is really where we started. Why are we doing this? And the fact is we need to reestablish access to Long Island so that those health facilities can be reused for opioid use disorder and other substance use disorders. Now, fast forward to today, I think something that gets lost in this conversation is in 2021, 2,290 people died from opioid use related deaths. 2021 was record year in Massachusetts. There's never been more opioid use related deaths in Massachusetts. So this problem hasn't gone away, hasn't gone away and it's fact getting much worse. And that's why this project is still being on the table. That's why four years later, despite the opposition, the litigation, Boston continues to defend a really great project and continues to pursue the remaining permits. So I want to get a little bit more on a specific strategy decision that you made. After the case was filed in Superior Court, the judge basically sent the case back to the Conservation Commission right, for further consideration of the engineering reports or some other materials that Boston uh, had about the project. The Conservation Commission says these materials are still inadequate. Basically, we can't tell how this impact will or will not affect our wetlands. But they provided you with what I guess could be characterized as, I think the word these days is an off-ramp. They say, why don't you get your engineers together, go back to the drawing board, get us some more detailed information about this project. And then come back and see us when you're done. You say no. And so the commission proceeds to reject the project, essentially reaffirming its, its prior decision. Now, from my perspective, just looking at the papers, it's a bold move, but it's one that paid significant dividends because you guys have had tremendous success in the courts, but I'd love for you to walk the listeners through, you know, your reasoning here and, you know, why didn't you just take the additional opportunity to provide more materials? There are a few reasons for that. The first being, again, the purpose of the project is to expedite what we're able to do on Long Island. We knew we were going to get a no vote on Sea Conservation Commission. That became clear before we even filed any applications at the Quincy Conservation Commission. You know, to remind our listeners, members of conservation commissions are volunteer members from the community or appointed by the mayor. It was 
to think you should type down in my complaint every quote that Chris Walker, Mayor Koch made in the press leading up to that hearing at the Quincy Conservation Commission. We knew we were going to get a no vote, and we knew that we were probably going to continue to get not the no vote, but we need a little bit more information to come back to the next thing. So when we submitted the application, we submitted everything, absolutely everything we needed to submit. We did have one public hearing. They did ask us to provide some more information. We did have some other permitting applications to file. So we went ahead and continued for an additional meeting because it didn't really change our trajectory on, on the timeline that we wanted. But by the time the second meeting came around, the Quincy Conservation Commission had our application. They had our other permit applications for other proceedings, not really relevant to their proceeding. They had all of the testing of the concrete of the substructures. They had all of the designs. They had an alternatives analysis that was prepared by engineers for different types of bridge structures. All of the information they were asking for and asked us to come back and produce, we actually thought that they already had it. What they were trying to do was get us to go back and do different types of tests on the concrete. Thus, that wasn't really a request for further information. That was a request for us to start testing concrete, types of concrete, structural integrity of concrete, all things that quite honestly just were not within the purview of any conservation commission. Certainly not under any reasonable reading of the Quincy Watts Protection Ordinance. So we made the decision to say no. And what that did is it teed up an argument for us, which was, look at all of this information we provided. Look at all of this information that we provided them well, even beyond what their ordinance would require. So not only did we later, which we ultimately succeeded on this point, have the preemption argument, but I think we had a really good arbitrary and capricious argument that to the extent it was going to deny based on these other concerns, how could you do that on this record or even based on this ordinance? And I thought we had a good substantial evidence argument as well. So that's why we ultimately said no. We knew we were going to get a no vote. This is just delay. And then on top of that, we submitted everything that they asked. I don't think there was anything that was missing. Fine. So now I want to turn to some of the broader implications of the SJC's decision. I was intrigued by NAOP's amicus brief in this case. NAOP, for the listeners, is a nonprofit organization that supports real estate development in Massachusetts and elsewhere. Basically, NAOP took the position that if the court were to accept Quincy's position, that local decision-making trumps the DEP, in this case, it would have led to, quote, regulation without standards. Now, what I understood that to mean was that if Quincy prevailed, it would mean that local regulators would have broad and unfettered discretion to make decisions that really impact real estate development, further increase costs, further increase uncertainty, essentially weighed down the real estate development industry even further than it's been weighed down historically through land use regulations. But NAOP and quite frankly, the SJC in the decision also recognized that Quincy could have enacted stricter environmental standards than those contained in the Wetlands Protection Act. And if they had relied on those stricter standards, 
in denying the request for the permits, that those stricter standards may have prevailed here, even in the face of the DEP's decision to allow the project. So I want to try to see if I can flesh out the broader development perspective of this. And so I wrote out a potential, almost preamble to the Quincy Wetlands Ordinance, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Unlike most communities in Massachusetts, Quincy possesses unique coastal resources, and the Wetlands Protection Act is insufficient to preserve and protect Quincy's natural resources. Therefore, the Quincy Wetlands Protection Ordinance shall be interpreted as more restrictive and more protective than the Wetlands Protection Act in order to preserve Quincy's vital resources. Now, maybe this question that I'm getting to sort of veers into Chevron deference as it's known in, you know, federal admin law, but that type of broad interpretive statement, if it's enforceable, would seem to me to have provided Quincy with the type of discretion that it was claiming that it had in your case. So I guess the question is whether that broad type sort of open-ended interpretive statement would be enforceable. And if not, what can Quincy or other communities do to provide sort of stricter protections to their wetlands and ensure that their preferences are met and that they won't get overruled by the DEP in the future? Yeah. Great questions. Let me start with the first one on whether I think adding that would be enforceable. My answer to that is still no. And this is why there's a case I cited to in my brief. I think it was called Fieldstone Development versus, I want to say it was the Andover Conservation Commission. There's a line in there that I, I love, and I think it's something like, it is essential to the administration of land use controls that there be uniformity and predictability. The problem with the Quincy Watts Protection Ordinance is it's almost entirely procedural. It's all about where to file, how to file, how many applications to file, how much to pay, what are the resource areas. But if you read the Quincy Wants Protection Ordinance, you totally put aside the Wants Protection Act and it's, what, 270 pages worth of regulations, you would have actually no idea what are the expectations of your project and how to design your project and how to protect the resource areas. So the Quincy Conservation Commission can act any kind of preamble that it wants upon those lines, but that still doesn't tell the developer, the project proponent, anything about the expectations that the Conservation Commission has. And I think that was the point of the NAOP brief. By the way, it was a great amicus brief. That is just a masterclass in concise and amicus rhetoric by the way. I think the point of their brief was, wait a second, if the Quincy Wants Protection Ordinance is good enough, we read it to be more strict than MassDEP, the applicant is essentially learning about its expectations during the process and not when it actually submits its application before public hearing. And that's precisely what Boston ran into. It submitted a project that on its face, it quantified all of the resource area impacts, temporary, permanent, described all the mitigation that would be part of the Long Island Bridge uh, superstructure replacement project. 
checked all the boxes on all the forms that Quincy Conservation Commission published. And then we just learned about new stuff they expected during the process. It's really difficult to see how that could ever be uniform or predictable. That's just just one-off decision-making, which is really counter to how land use controls are supposed to be administered. And we were backed up on this because something that I did, I wrote this in my complaint, we did it before filing. I went back and looked at every set of minutes the Quincy Conservation Commission that was available. We went back all the way to 2016. The Long Island Bridge Project was their first denial since 2016, almost in a three-year period. And that says a lot about how that ordinance was interpreted and used. So, no, I don't think that that preamble would have saved the Quincy Conservation Commission. I agree with you that the decision does have broad implications. And I actually think a lot of communities are doing this right. But I think what this decision says is it's not good enough to say that you're more strict. If you're a town or a city, you do have resource areas that you want to protect and they're either different from the Wilds Protection Act's protected resource areas, or you want to protect them more stringently. I think what it says is either in your ordinance or pursuant to regulations that you promulgate under the ordinance or bylaw, you need to sit and identify what are those resource areas and what are the performance standards? What do projects need to do to either protect those resource areas or minimize impacts on those resource areas or provide mitigation, restoration, or replacement if you can't protect those resource areas. And I think, I don't think that was not the law before City of Boston versus Quincy Conservation Commission, but I do think the SJC has doubled down on Last question for you. How did you get involved in this case? My first job out of law school, I clerked at the Massachusetts Superior Court. It's phenomenal. And me too, by the way. We'll I'll talk about that afterwards. We'll have to talk about that. And as you know, there's a, you know, short contract. So it's either one year. If you're lucky, maybe you'll ask to come back a second year. So I think most clerks probably spend the period of, you know, January to August putting out applications and looking for jobs. I did that. I cast a wide net and I applied to the city of Boston Law Park. I forgot I applied to the city of Boston Law Department by the time I heard back from them. But I, I interviewed and I ended up joining the City of Boston Law Department as an assistant corporation counsel, working under that at Cedarbaum is actually now the city's corporation counsel, just an incredible lawyer. And the way our division worked is each attorney is assigned departments. And I happened to be assigned to the city's environment department. I was their chief counsel, main counsel. Uh, and that included conservation commission, wetlands protection, climate change issues air pollution control, parking enforcement, to some extent, idling, you name it. Historic preservation was covered under that. So I spent three years advising the Boston Conservation Commission, representing the Boston Conservation Commission and DEP appeals and other matters. And after Mayor Walsh announced the project, I was asked to advise our public works department on violence protection issues and permitting. And the rest was history. I came in one day, they wanted to talk wetlands. We did. We knew that there were going to be appeals. I remember the city engineer asking me, do you litigate? Is that part of your job? And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I do. That is part of my job. And that was that. And then I've been with the project ever since now, you know, March, 2018. 
Sammy, congratulations on such a high-profile victory. Best of luck on any future challenges by Quincy. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully they don't come, but I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. That's our show. Check out the show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you were involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at bernkofflegal.com. That's rstetson at b-e-r-n-k-o-p-f legal.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a positive review. Follow us on Instagram at Legal Judgments, on Twitter at Legal underscore Judgments, and on LinkedIn at Legal Judgments Podcast. And don't forget that E in Judgments.